0: I'm Jessica Stewart, and this is the My Modern Met Top Artists Podcast. I can't wait to introduce you to this week's guest, Caledonia Curry, better known as Swoon. Known for instantly recognizable wheat paste and cup paper installations, she gained acclaim in the early 2000s as part of a wave of street artists working in New York City. After working anonymously for years, she rocketed to success at a fairly young age, and while others might have crumbled under the pressure, she adapted her work while also making sure that she remained creatively fulfilled. Part of this fulfillment meant getting involved in community projects. Her Heliotrope Foundation has done everything from building shelters in Haiti to helping transform an abandoned church into a community base in Pennsylvania. Personally, as an avid street art photographer, I remember using my trips to New York to scour the streets for her weed paste, and then making the journey to Boston's Contemporary Art Museum to marvel at her incredible paper installation. I've also participated, in a way, in one of her community projects by purchasing a digital print of hers to support the Braddock Tiles of project, which we'll touch on later. So you can imagine just how thrilled I was to speak with her. Okay, let's dive in. To really understand Caledonia's work, we need to understand the context. And so, as Sofia Petrilla would say, picture it. Early 2000s New York. No, but really, picture it. See, New York City has always been a center of art, and in the early 2000s, something new was brewing. A new group of artists, independently from one another, was going out into the streets and creating public art, without permission from anyone. This street art was really different than the graffiti art of New York's heyday in the 1980s, what you see on the trains, and this group of artists moved from using New York as their gallery to working with major institutions. Caledonia, working under the name of Swoon, was at the forefront. At 19, she'd moved to Brooklyn to attend the Pratt Institute, and in her free time, she'd ride around and wheat paste portraits of people on the side of buildings. So. What was it that pushed her to make that leap and work
1: in such a risky way? When I got to New York, I really fell in love with, you know, I used to love like Rauschenberg, for example. And then when I got to New York, I was like, oh, this is a Rauschenberg, like this absolute beautiful chaos that's so loose and it's free and you just can't. You know, you're never going to you're never going to imitate it, really, like it's got to just be out there and be happening, um, you know, these kind of weird decisions and strange like accidents and, the you know, the decay and the life cycle and all of it. And so I was just like, oh, I, I want that. I, I want what that is. And I don't want to try to imitate it at home. I just want to go out into it.
0: Not only was Caledonia taking a risk by pasting up her work publicly, but she was also taking a risk in the eyes of the contemporary art market. In a world where everything is very standardized, she was saying no to the system. Even today, there's pressure on her to produce artwork that hangs neatly on a wall. But there's inherently a part of her that knows it's necessary for her to rebel against what's expected in order to thrive.
1: There's this craze for canvases at the moment, which doesn't have anything to do with an artistic choice. It's just about the ease of selling these artworks. And I've had, you know, even people that I work with be like, oh, that's just what's happening right now. Like, if it's, it's all these collectors that are just pushing these things to market and you have to make it in this way. And for me, that feels horrifying to be like, what? You have to make it in this way so that it can, like, fit easily in the chute of the marketplace. I can just go right down that chute and I was just like, "No, not doing that." And I think that feeling that pressure back then, which is the same pressure that is existing on artists today, I just, you know, it just felt like being shoved down a cattle chute and I was like, "No, I'm not going." And so there was just this question of like, "Well, what then? What what do you want to do?" And I was like, "I want to be outside. I want to make these impermanent things."
0: But interestingly, the system that Caledonia was trying to escape nearly scooped her back up. She'd enjoyed anonymity for quite a few years, but now she started to sense that something was different. All of a sudden, people were stopping her while she did paste-ups to tell her they admired her work. Blogs like the Worcester Collective were created and started documenting the street art scene in a big way. And an art dealer and curator by the name of Jeffrey Deich would take an interest in street art, helping bring a group of artists, which included Swoon, into the big leagues. You were really involved in what was happening in New York City at such a pivotal time. There were so yeah. many people, like Shepard Ferry and
1: mm-hmm. and many others,
0: who were who were pacing up. And I've I've read in interviews of yours before where you said, you know, it was odd because we were all sort of separate. Like everyone was just, you know, doing their own thing, and it just all seemed to come to a head at, at a certain moment. I mean, looking back, did you when you were in the thick of it in the beginning I mean, did you realize that oh this is going to be something big or it just is definitely not you know all of a sudden it
1: happened it happened but i was i was working for a few years before it really happened so you know it was all. i think it's always been something big i think I don't know. I would argue that people have wanted to write on walls for basically ever. Oh, well, go to Pompeii and you'll see it. (laughs) Exactly. It's always something big in a way, right? And so I just felt like I just kind of entered the stream of what was already happening. And so I thought that was it. I was like, oh, there's People are writing on stuff and I'm doing my thing and everyone's just doing something and whatever, and it's fun and starting to get to know people eventually. But then something did like really kind of explode. And that and that happened. I was already working for about three or four years by the time that happened. And it was pretty remarkable to be in the energy of that. Like I was just reading back through old journals and like, you know, people just walking up to me on the street and being like, everyone's looking for you. And me being like, What? (laughs) You know, while I'd be putting up a paste or something, which I I had been doing so anonymously for years. And then all of a sudden, everyone was just like alive with it. They were like, what is this? You know, and it was this kind of beautiful, exciting moment to be a part of.
0: And so as you're working and you're doing this stuff on the street, momentum builds and you start getting called to do installations in more institutional settings. I actually remember I'm from just outside of Boston and I was home one summer when you had your installation up at the ICA and, um, just remember being mesmerized by how, you know, powerful it was, how delicate it was with all that paper. And, you know, obviously tackling these sort of large huge projects is much more different than independently going out in the street. You know, what was that leap like going from, okay, I'm just doing this for myself as sort of an expression and also working, you know, as an artist to all of a sudden be like, wow, now I'm getting called up to a major museum and I need to, there's all these possibilities.
1: What was that process like of making that transition? It started, um, I would say, mainly with Jeffrey Deitch um, in 2005. You know, I had started to do these smaller installations and then I, I he called me and I showed him a picture of this and he was like, OK, let's do it, but big. And at that point, you know, he, he said, here's some budget to get started. Here's some space to work in. So it was the first time anyone had ever done that with me. And then, and so all of a sudden I was able to like call my friends and like actually hire people. And, you know, we still had to figure out how to go far with what we had. But, you know, it was this moment of kind of tapping into my community and saying like, can you help me learn how to do this? And so I had a lot of like friends who were builders and friends who had project managed things before, you know, and friends who had kind of done this. And, you know, a couple of them kind of rallied and just taught me how to do it. You know, one of my friends said, while you have a crew here, You can't disappear into something. The only thing you can do is walk around to your crew constantly and just keep make sure all the plates are spinning in the room. And that was a huge adjustment for me. And I actually Mm. hated it at first. Um, (laughs) And what I would do is I I didn't sleep because I would work by myself in my little zone at night and then I would spin plates with the crew for the rest of the day. And so I really had to learn that balance about like the privacy of of creation with what it takes to actually execute things on a large scale which is to work with a team and so and so that was a huge one and then also you know learning to be in the public eye I mean, it's not nothing, you know, it's like even even at my scale and I'm not like Britney Spears, obviously, (laughs) like I just can't even imagine. I cannot imagine the pressure that those people are under, because even at the scale of public eye that somebody like me is under, it's actually quite a lot of pressure. It actually is, particularly when you're young and it's just getting started, you know, and there's like I was part of a movement and the movement had some momentum and excitement around it. And so, you know, at that moment, it, it's, it's a lot of pressure on a young person, you know, and, and so just learning to kind of adjust to that. And to escape from that pressure, while still using what she'd learned,
0: Caledonia embarked on an epic project to bring sailing vessels made from recycled items to Venice. In 2009, she and a skilled team of friends actually invaded the Venice Biennale in these sailboats. Realizing this dream, one that she'd had for years, only reinforced her vision of herself as an artist forging her own path. Here,
1: Caledonia reflects back on her motivation for bringing the rafts to life. You know, I think that the impetus to do that was not dissimilar from the impetus to start making work on the street in the first place, which was this drive to find greater freedom and this drive to find ways to make art that you know, had this like outsider existence and made us more free and made us more able to travel and communicate with people and kind of find younger versions of ourselves and be just sort of in like the wilderness of creation, you know, and and street art was very much that for me. And then, you know, as right after the that first Deitch show that I talked about, you know, there was this feeling of like, okay, are is that it? Are you an institutional artist now? And my answer was, no, definitely not. I am not. And I, the first thing I did was just run off and travel a bunch. And then the very next thing I did was rally together a group of friends and and you know work on this raft project. And I'd been dreaming about it for years. I think that I needed to not just go down the track. It was like the track was presented again in the same way that it was after art school. It was like, are you just going to be this kind of painter, maker of squares for auction. And I was like, no. And then it was like, again, look, like, okay, are you just gonna go down this like institutional track? And I was like, no. And uh, you know, it was like just this dream. It had been there for such a long time. I had really like just wanted wanted to make it happen. And then I finally had started to build a community of people that could do it with me. Cause I, of course I couldn't have done that by myself. I mean, you, that is is a deeply collaborative endeavor. If you have a business,
0: you need a website. So what's the best way to get a website up and running? Choose a website hosting company that makes it simple, like Pair Networks. Pair has over 20 years experience managing the entire digital ecosystem for thousands of online businesses all around the world. Pair makes it easy for you with do-it-yourself website building tools and features, including simple drag and drop page design and they have guaranteed US-based support technicians ready to help you whenever you need it, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pair Networks, you'll receive 1 free month of web hosting. See for yourself how easy it is to build your website for free. Visit pair.com/free to get your first month of website hosting for free by using the code quickstart. That's pair.com/free, promo code quickstart to get started today. Coming on the heels of another successful project, she couldn't help but feel that something was missing, and that she should be doing something more to make an impact. This desire would manifest itself in the many community projects that she worked on in earnest. So I was curious, where did this desire to help the community come from?
1: I remember like as a teenager, one time waking my mother up in the middle of the night and being like, you're going to talk to me about life, you know? And I was like, just talking to her about the pain of existence and the pain of knowing that you are well, while others are suffering. And I was like, what do you do with this? Like, how do you even live with this pain? And she was like, you help people like you reach outside of yourself in whatever way you can and you're not you're not going to help everything you're not going to fix things what you're going to do is connect i don't know she just sort of spoke about kindness and about connection and about what it what it feels like to just try to be of service in some way and i think that really stayed with me that that's what you can do and so for example like when we were on the rafts i remember thinking we have moved mountains. We have made absolutely impossible things happen. We have done things that every person said we couldn't do. And we did it for fun and for joy and for beauty. And like we had some kind of internal dialogues about climate change that we going. But at the end of the day, it was really just this kind of ecstatic expression of joy, which is fucking phenomenal. I don't discount it. And yet at the same time, I was like, ooh like i'm also aware that people are suffering in this moment and i'm just wondering if we could take the skills that we've learned and directly contact that suffering and and i think that i'm just kind of like a concrete thinker in a way that if i've learned something that if i have a tool i want to use that tool physically i want to like be involved in like this kind of like tangible connection to trying to you know, be of service to whatever the thing is that's happening, um, and so in Haiti, it was rebuilding after the earthquake. It was it was being involved as artists, as hands-on people, as community organizers, as fundraisers, all these things. So, shortly after,
0: she got involved. In 2007, she was invited to take over an abandoned church that was set for demolition in Braddock, Pennsylvania. For 10 years, Braddock Tiles worked tirelessly to attempt to restore this architectural gem while also connecting with local youth. Let's talk a little bit about about Braddock Tiles, which you started in 2007. Can you talk Mm -hmm. us through... Sort of how that project
1: started and how you, what your involvement was there. Um, so back in 2006, um, uh, some friends and I were invited to do an exhibition in this town, that was like many Rust Belt towns all over the country. Um, undergoing this kind of slow motion collapse because of industrial divestment. And so it was, you know, a real situation of like a slow moving catastrophe and of of a situation where that sense of like your neighbors are going through a crisis and is there a way that you can, can rally behind that or, you know, are there you know, even opportunities, like people wanted to be farmers or things and they couldn't do it in the city. So, you know, are there ways that you can find an opportunity to be a farmer and also like be of help in this community? Uh, we went there to do this exhibition and then somebody showed me this building and they were like, this is going to get bulldozed. All of these buildings are getting bulldozed. Like we're losing all of this architecture, this kind of history because nobody can take care of them. I know you guys do these big projects. Is there any way that you can take on this building? And rather naively, in fact, I said, yes. And so I got together with some friends and we, um, you know, we started to formulate a project and the project has has morphed many, many times over the years. And in fact, um, I think that I can announce this publicly, I'm actually working to transition ownership currently of the church to an incredible woman who runs, uh, housing for people coming out of prison, people transitioning from homelessness that, uh, that she's just this like powerhouse in her community. And we have already worked together to start a safe house for women, um, in the house that we were living in. And now we're working to transition the church to her. So it's got this very like exciting new momentum right now, but, but over the course of the project, you know, we did a lot of work with community arts programming. We did work with the youth program. Once I really realized that that I wasn't, you know, with with kind of how my life had changed, I wasn't going to be the person that was going to kind of lead it into its next incarnation. And so then the process became finding that person. Um, and so it's been so exciting to have Rana You know, we met her kind of through the work that we had been doing over the last decade. So it's like this kind of very deeply rooted process where my collaborators there, you know, were the ones as they were leaving, they were like, hey how about Rana? And I was like, yes, let's do this. And so, yeah, now we're working to transition the church to her. It's super exciting, but also still pretty intimidating. It's still a pretty intimidating project. So there's kind of a lot, you know, we'll probably do another Kickstarter before too long. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's entering into what I hope will be its final phase for me, but the long continuing phase for uh, Zakaya House and Danelle's Safe Haven and all the spaces that are starting.
0: Amazing. I mean,
1: what is your big takeaway from a
0: project like that? I mean, that's a pretty big question considering how how long you've been working on it. But what do you think
1: the work there really taught you? I I feel like I often say this, but it is my big takeaway. So is that if you are like me and you are an artist who works in a lot of different spaces and, and ways, the thing that you need is to be interconnected with a community organization that's already got its own power source, that's already driven by its own mission And that you need to sort of find a way to, you know, work with what they have going and to kind of empower them and be empowered by them. Because, you know, if you, like me, are, you know, doing this, doing that, doing this, doing that, there's no you know, I, as an outsider, I can bring special things. I do have things to offer. You know, people talk about like spaceship plop art and like, you know, what it means to like come into a community and drop something and leave and all of this stuff. And there's a, there is a lot of, um, kind of cautionary tales around that. And I would say that, that I have learned that, um, you know, as an outsider, there are things you can bring. You can bring somebody who isn't Um, you know, fully mired in that exact same set of circumstances, but who has a fresh perspective, you can bring, you know, resources from a different community and you can bring, you know, the skills that you have and the teams that, you know, and connect. And so there, there are kind of things that are actually very, very valuable about being an outsider, but at the same time, you, you don't have roots and you need those roots. And, and so for me, what really has worked is not kind of appearing and not having roots, but is actually connecting with teams and organizations and projects that already have those roots. And then you guys can kind of have a synergy together.
0: Braddock Tiles is just one of many extraordinary projects that Caledonia works on. And in 2015, she founded the Heliotrope Foundation to guide the community projects that she works with. But all this community engagement certainly didn't make her any less productive artistically. In fact, her career continued to thrive, as she continued creating street art while also collaborating with major institutions. No matter what she's working on or where it will be displayed, her strength as a storyteller makes her work stand apart. Her imagery is so iconic and dreamlike that I just had to ask how she comes up with the stories that she tells. What is the creative process that you go through for developing these stories? Are these things that you sort of snippets of ideas that you just keep over time? Um, Do you wake up from a dream like, oh, my God, I've got to make this? You know, how do these
1: stories evolve? Both of those things. Um, I guess it depends on what the story is. Honestly, I would almost have to say like project by project, you know, like um, uh, I'm kind of working on developing something right now, which. Uh, was something i started to write and then it seemed to just come out of me in this kind of one piece and it was it's kind of related to past events so it had some kind of foundation already but then the sort of the fantastical nature of it seemed to just like, sort of take its own um form
0: lately caledonia has turned her attention to stop motion animation a far cry from the fast paced work of street art or managing a large team This craft has allowed her to turn inward and fill up her well of creativity. So what drove her to turn her creative energy in that direction?
1: Well, I think the initial turn was, it was like I said about Braddock Tiles, how I was in the middle of all this very external community-based work. And then I boom, 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 like went through all this tragedy, right, very close together. And, you know, there was a lot of death in my family at and, and those deaths really brought up a ton of unresolved trauma. You know, I really hadn't really been dealing with kind of any of the stuff that we talked about, about substance abuse and mental illness in my family and all of these things I I just had not dealt with. And and those deaths just made it like a fresh wound. And so it was like I, I really got called to take care of myself in a totally different way. And so I had to really quite pull back from a lot of those um these kind of powerhouse outward projects. And I just had to like be alone in a room and I I needed it with like every fiber of my being was like, girl, you need to sit down and you need to be quiet for a little bit. And you need to just like, let some of this come to the surface and let some of it settle. And you need to just like be with yourself. And I, I can't like almost imagine a better way to like spend a lot of time in a room with yourself than like tweak, click click you know and letting the stop motion process where you do these little 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 teeny things and you're kind of having them evolve and it's very dreamlike and it's very internal and it's you know for me projects that go inward and that are that are dreamlike and that are interior focused and that are kind of fantastical I think of them as kind of you know, the projects that refill the well, and then I think of the community-based projects as the projects where we give what we have. You know, we have this very full well, and we kind of give it out. But for me, and I think maybe for everyone, I mean, this is not a, it's not a linear process that you need to sort of ebb and flow with it. And so the stop-motion animation was where I sort of returned inward and spent some time just you know, in the fun and in the fantasy and, and in the very, the stakes are very low, you know, like if I tape something up and it falls like that's fine. (laughs) But like when you're in Haiti and you're building a community center, it can't fall at all. No chance. You the stakes are very high and, you know, and you're interacting with community and you're making promises. The stakes are very high, but when I'm alone in my room, it's like between me and the artwork. And that was very restorative.
0: I love that metaphor of sort of filling up the well for yourself so then you can give it out, which I think is something that actually in life all of us need to do more, right? Take care of ourselves so that we can take care of other people. Oh, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, good reminder. Now, as always, we turn over the reins to you in our Ask the Artist, where we let you submit your questions for our guests. If you want to ask a question in an upcoming episode, head over to podcast.mymodernmet.com and sign up for our newsletter or follow us on Instagram at Podcast. The first question was, what would be your advice for a young and upcoming artist who wants to sort of make themselves seen and, and get out there?
1: Yeah. Well, I think that the most important thing about an artwork is its context in a way that that culturally we want to feel that an artwork has some kind of a significance beyond its aesthetic value, even though the aesthetic value alone is so important. Um, But if, if the question is really about how to make other people care, um, which I think is an absolutely great and fine question. Um, for me, the answer is that it should connect to, to things that people care about. And so, you know, thinking about movements or thinking about storytelling or thinking about, you know, things that people are already doing, um, that are engaging them. And is there a way that you can kind of make your artwork sort of seated within, kind of a larger cultural movement or in service to something, you know, is there like, what are the things that you care about? And are there any activist groups that you can work with to kind of help push forward what they're doing? You know, that's a a way of being in context or, you know, getting together with your friends and kind of making a show and telling a story about why it's important in this moment. It's a way of developing your own context or, you know even just kind of all the different ways if you think about what are the things that we that we live with from fashion to games to cars to you know with street art street art was just about sort of celebrating cities. I mean, people were moving to the to cities by the thousands at that point. That was like what was going on is everyone rediscovered that they were in love with cities. And then street artists were like, we love cities, ah, the walls, ah, making together. You know, it was this kind of mania for something that was happening, which was this sort of global collective appreciation of urban space. Um, and so I think that my advice is Think about what you love, think about what interests you, what fascinates you, and then think about how your artwork can connect to those other cultural phenomena. You know, anything, skateboarding, surfing, whatever, whatever thing you're into, Um, you know, what are the kind of movements and how can you connect with other people and kind of make it become part of something bigger than just that one artwork. Great. That's great advice. Um, our last
0: question comes from a listener who wanted to know, where do you go when you're looking for
1: inspiration? Gosh, I go totally everywhere. It really depends. You know, there was a phase of my life when I traveled extensively because I had studied so much art that I felt that I couldn't look at art anymore. And I just wanted to look at cities and I just wanted to see where people set the garbage and how they built the window pane and like where the power line was strung and like where the dogs lived. Like I just needed to see like the paint colors and the shutters and the windows and the buses and the blah, blah, blah. I needed to like feel what a city felt like and just imbibe every urban language I possibly could. Um, And that was my inspiration for years. I almost didn't, you know, sometimes I would go to museums or look at art, but I almost didn't at that point, you know, and then Uh, However many years later, then I was like, okay, like, oh my God, this whole new generation of artists have sprung up. Let me just like, you know, pour through them in all these different places and go to shows and look at videos and look on Instagram and look everywhere. Um, And then right now I'm learning about film. And so I'm just kind of like devouring, you know, all those years when I lived on the rafts. I didn't see television or anything. I mean, I barely saw there was was so much culture that I just wasn't exposed to because I was, you know, just literally like living on a floating plank of wood. And so now I'm sort of catching up on all of these things and just thinking about the, you know, the various ways that people still tell stories, um, in film, you know, from kids movies to, to, um, you know, other kinds of filmmaking. And so it's, I, I go, I go wherever I'm pulled.
0: <laughs> As we wrap up our time together, I want to ask you a question that we ask are asking all of the artists we're talking to this season, um, which is what sort of impact do you hope that your work will leave?
1: I think that ultimately the thing that I care about most has to do with kind of human interconnection and compassion in a way that I think originates with compassion for and knowledge of self that I hope that sort of somehow the work that I'm doing for example right now and that I've been doing over the past many years of kind of really confronting you know, my own inner demons and my own um, kind of dark places, and then trying to translate that into work that's about healing. Ultimately, I feel like that's about kind of a compassionate interconnection with like self and other. And I, and I think I just want to make something that has that imprint of like, first of all, knowing that healing and repair and growth and regeneration and play and wonder and all of these things are possible like if there was a way that you could sort of imbue that kind of love into an object like that would be you know one of my dearest wishes and then and then also the spirit of deep self-exploration and self-knowledge in a way that also kind of serves like interconnection with others and you know kind of just more kindness and curiosity, I think, about ourselves and others. If there's a way that that could be somehow contained within my work, I think that would be what I would hope. Well, I definitely think you're you're on that path, that's for sure.
0: Well, that's all for today's show. I hope you enjoyed our chat with Caledonia Curry, also known as Swoon. And a special thanks to her for taking the time to speak with us. You can follow her work at swoonstudio.org and online on Instagram. If you want to check out some of her stop motion videos, you'll find the link to her YouTube in the description. As always, we'll be back in two weeks with another interview with one of today's top creatives and learn more about how they're making an impact on the art world. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And if you'd like to leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. It really helps people discover the podcast. See you next time. And don't forget to check out mymodernmet.com for your daily dose of art and culture.